Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal series, including five wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health! Exclamation Point, The Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise, The Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years, The Wise Woman Way, and Susan's latest book, Down There, Sexual and Reproductive Health, The Wise Woman Way. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public on appointment-only basis. She offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at the Wise Woman University. But you can also just go to her website, susanweed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's see what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Thank you, Justin. We are going to have to re-record that introduction because... We are getting nearer and nearer to Abundantly Well being published. Welcome, Rebecca. Hi, Susan. Hi. I have actually started the index. Oh, wow. I started the index by gathering together the names of all the herbs in the book and then alphabetizing it. Wow, cool. It's a big job. It's a big job, but I love doing it. Mm-hmm. And um, gives you a chance to really go through the book again, too, huh? <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah, one last. I'm I'm putting in Betsy's last uh, 
corrections and it's wonderful, you know, and maybe 20 pages, there's only one or two pages where there are even any corrections anymore. So hip, hip, hooray. Not that any of us think we'll have a perfect book, but at least we'll have most of the errors out. You know, it's always wonderful and exciting to me that everyone who looks at the book always finds something that no one else has found. I had two copies of the galleys that were out in women's hands and that they had returned to me over the past little while. And one of them had saw about a hundred things that were wrong. And two of the things she saw nobody else had seen. Oh, wow. And the other woman only saw about 30 things that were wrong. I would say there's more like a thousand things that are wrong in the book. <laughs> and, and and I don't mean any secret things. <laughs> but of those <laughs> that she found, five of them nobody else had seen. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So thank you, everyone. Mm-hmm who is looking at galleys and reporting back to me on all of the many, many, many errors. Hopefully we will have a book without those errors. I'm sure it will have some errors of its own, but that's okay. We all have our errors, don't we? Yes, we do. (laughs) (laughs) And, oh, sigh, oh, my gosh, I'm sitting here alone. Cassandra graduated after being here for 13 weeks. Yeehaw, she's on her way back to Oregon, flying through the air, even as we speak. Oh, she lives out here. That's yes, cool. lives up there. And this evening at 9 o'clock, Sarah Drew is going to be with us. She is a visionary author, and she does all kinds of interesting things with feminine wisdom and evolutionary culture and regenerative technology and the Gaia Codex. So be sure you're here at 9 o'clock my time or stay tuned. And we'll be talking with Sarah Drew. Mm. It's nice to see, you know, during the summertime, since I don't burn any wood in the wood stove, and the wood stove becomes the the place where all of the remedies that are made by the apprentices that year wind up. Hmm. Or any remedies cool. that that I make, yeah. And it's wonderful to see that it's nearly covered. Mm-hmm. But there's hardly any room. Have you been using any of them yet? Yes, I started using the cleaver's tincture. Mm, nice. I want to Is have a something? closer. I want to have a closer relationship with the cleavers. Mm-hmm. And it was growing so profusely in one of my gardens that I made half a gallon of tincture. Nice, and it's, it's, a it's plant, obviously to you. Yes, plants that I think of as. One that you can use in great quantity, that you can even make, if you dry it, you can make infusion of it. Yeah, I think it's a very nourishing herb. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's, of, of course, for those of you who are listening, it's called cleavers because it cleaves to you, because it clings to you. It's in the bed straw family. and It's a lot of different bed straws. We make use of quite a few of them. And the cleavers is the one that's most usually known as medicine, partly because one of the members of the family is sweet woodruff. And the smell of sweet woodruff is the smell of a compound 
that thins the blood. And it actually does. It's Coumadin, and it's literally related to Coumarin, the drug, which is a blood thinner. So the amount of the Coumadin in the bed straw is of some concern because you're going to use it as a food or a beverage or a medicine, you don't want to be unknowingly taking something that will thin your blood. But this compound, Coumadin, is so strong. It's also in yellow sweet clover, melalotus, and it's especially prominent in the plant when the plant is wilted. There's, it's not so bioavailable when the plant is fresh or when the plant is dry. But when it's wilted, it's very bioavailable. We actually had a baby goat die from eating wilted yellow sweet clover. Oh, wow. And when we opened her up, her body cavity was filled with her blood. Oh, my God. Huh. So she had hemorrhaged. Mm-hmm. She had, you know, somebody had plucked it from the garden, thrown it over the fence. It had wilted. She came along and ate it. And it mm-hmm. killed her. Yeah, mm-hmm. it didn't seem like it, it, you know, that she was in any pain. She just kind of laid down, went to sleep, and didn't wake up. But that's why cleavers is the one that's used so often because cleavers has the least of that compound. Mm-hmm. As we know, because that compound has a smell. It smells like vanilla, and there's some of it in vanilla. Hmm. It's also in Blazing Star. It gets around that compound. It gets around like what? It gets around. That, that mm-hmm. com- it's it, it's part of what makes vanilla smell good, and many of us as a child were so mm, enchanted by the smell of vanilla that we decided to drink a little vanilla from the bottle, only to discover that it tasted horrible and bitter. And it's that compound mm-hmm. that makes it bitter. Mm. Yeah. Think of it like energetically and spiritually as being very expanding too. Like when you take it, it just like it, it is like expansive. Like even in your lungs and your heart and everything is it just like opens everything up. Is that the cleavers you're talking about? Yeah, the cleavers. Mm-hmm. Cleavers, how wonderful. Mm. Cleavers, the expander. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've been... Uh, making tomato sauce today and I was just curious I wanted to ask you if you um I always just instinctively leave the the seeds and the skins on when I make tomato sauce because I think of it as just being more nourishing because there's more nutrients in the seeds and the skin and I was curious if you do that as well yes absolutely the antioxidant vitamins that a plant has are generally most concentrated in the area between the skin and the flesh because that's where oxidative activity is happening. So we basically just quarter our tomatoes, cut off any yucky spots, of course, and cook them. And then at the end, we put them through the Foley food mill, which takes out the seeds and skin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're not actually eating the seeds and the skins. Okay. Yeah, I usually blend mine up at the end. 
but I do, so I do actually eat them. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I like a smoother sauce. Mhm. Okay. Because uh, I've just heard, yeah, in the past, like that the the seeds, the, the seeds have like poisonous parts to them. But then, like as I was reading about it, because I was like, I just never want to remove them. But they actually contain a lot of nutrients, and that um, they're not as it's mostly in the leaves and the stems of the plant that has the most poisons in them. It's not actually the seeds, and that that's like a common misconception. The solanines. Mm-hmm. I saw it was interesting because so many people say to remove the seeds in the skin, and, yeah, <laughs> I really like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's nice. right. The concentration of the, the, the lysopene, right, is in the skin. Lycopene is in, right. Right mm-hmm. there between the skin and the flesh is where most of the lycopene is. But... Well. By the time you've cooked it, the lycopene is now in the sauce. It's not in the skin anymore. Okay, yeah. i got to get my hands on the food mill. Foley food mills are so nice. They're so easy. Yeah, and they're so useful for so many things. Yeah, we do the same thing with our applesauce. We just quarter the apples. We don't even take the center out and cook them down and then put them through the Foley food mill. Mm-hmm, Okay. Sounds good. We have a lot of people on the line tonight. Well, I guess we should start answering questions then. Okay, sounds good. If you have a question, I'll remind the callers to press 1 to put your call in the queue. And our first caller is coming from the 618 area code. Hello, Susan. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hey, um, I'm really glad to be talking to you. Uh Thanks for taking the call. Um, I'm calling with uh, cannabis questions. Um, in particular, where would you go to get accurate information on cannabis and the effects of smoking cannabis? That is a really excellent question. And I was happy to see that one of the oldest books on my shelf that I would recommend is out in a new edition. And it's called From Chocolate to Morphine. Chocolate to Morphine. Understanding Mind Active Drugs by Andrew Weil. Is he... That's a familiar name. Is he... um... He, Indeed... And it's really um, a superb book. After that, I find that information about something that's, shall we say, happening in the moment. In other words, for years and years and years, no studies on cannabis have been allowed. Nonetheless, people have been working with it. They have been ingesting it, smoking it. And so in that kind of situation, I like to talk to as many people as I can about what their experiences are. Okay. Um, I can tell you that most people I've talked to 
experience something very different when they ingest cannabis than when they smoke it. I, I agree with that. I don't enjoy ingesting it very much. Most of the people who go to emergency rooms have ingested it because it's not much fun. It's um, difficult to dose properly. The research that is being done is pretty interesting. There's movies out and some books out. And I think the FDA is in the midst of approving um, cannabis for the use in treating seizures in children. I've heard this as well, yeah. Yeah. Certainly CBD is, as it should be, taking the country by storm. I am so glad that CBD seems to be everywhere, on everyone's lips and in every store. I understand that's a great problem for people, that they have no uh, quality control. And I'm sure that that will be coming along. But initially, um, the FDA tried to uh, list CBD products as class one, you know, as dangerous as heroin. It seemed that basically what happened was they were just ignored. So what else can you share with us about your experiences or what you've yeah to know? I, I'm I'm kind of in the transition. I've been smoking a gram a day of cannabis for twenty plus years. Um, it comes out to about an ounce a month and, um, the circles I'm kind of moving in in my family situation, I kind of have to, uh, uh, keep it fairly under wraps, even though it just is, it does a, it, <laughs> it keeps me out of a lot of anxiety and a lot of, a lot of distress. And it helps me, um, kind of forget things that aren't all that important, if that makes any sense. And, it not um, only makes sense, it's scientifically validated. Yeah, whatever. I mean, I fell you in know, love with people it. People always say, oh, marijuana makes you, makes you forget things. And science says, yeah, it does, but it only makes you forget the bad things. Yes. <laughs> yes. It, uh, or, or tones it down. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, turns the volume down. Yeah. Right. So um, it's not so in your face. Right. It and um, especially if used right after a trauma, it literally prevents the brain from forming memory. That makes so much sense. <laughs> uh, we had lost a couple of children before uh, a year old, and um, uh, to a genetic disease that's a little rare, and. Uh, um, the first uh our our first son we lost we uh i was going to be perfect you know and be basically a monk and uh pray our way to health there and uh that that was really a uh, a bad idea <laughs> to try to do that alone and uh by the second time around i had 
uh, I had just kind of resigned to having an ally in cannabis and, um, it was just a, uh, less fraught experience if that, uh, uh, if that makes any sense. Um, I, I worry the thing I worry about and the worry might be more the issue than anything is like, I, I don't enjoy ingesting it. I really enjoy uh, smoking it. Um, but I worry about like lung damage and things like that. And I read things and I don't know, I just don't know what to believe. Cause as you said, the studies have been scant up until, uh, you know, recently. Right. And I'm, uh, yeah. So I'm just, I'm wondering about those things and addressing some chronic worry issues that I've, I've kind of absorbed from my atmosphere, I guess. When I was working with the midwifery community and, um, Ina May Gaskin used cannabis in her midwifery practice, but many other midwives were very much against it. Um, I thought to myself that since there weren't studies, I was going to go and talk to people, so I went to Jamaica. Because I knew there was a population there, almost all of whom smoked cannabis on a daily basis. And that the women smoked it while they were pregnant and while they were lactating, and the men smoked it. And that if I was going to see any fertility problems, then I would probably see it in that population. You know, I'd be sitting out front with a man with his, like, six kids, and he's smoking this big spliff, right? Then I'm asking him about fertility (laughs) problems, and he says to me, how much more do I have to smoke? He says, how much more do I have to smoke? Right. In other words, he'd be happy not to have a kid every year and a half. (laughs) <laughs> All it takes is his smoking a little more he'll sacrifice. <laughs> and they you know, they smoke far more than a gram a day, my gosh. Okay. That makes me feel better. So I yeah. Uh, that, I'm not aware of I'm Go yeah, go find people in their seventies and eighties who've been smoking daily. Okay. For a long amount of time and see if you want to be them. Okay. It's yeah. what I call collecting butterflies. I suggest that menopausal women do it. <clears throat> that they collect women who are in their 70s and 80s that they would like to become. I like that. I like that. I, I work with an elderly population for my profession, and I like that. Yeah. I, I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Right next to my toilet is an 87-year-old woman who has just won the International Women's Power Lifting Championship. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> That's beautiful. So yeah. I know I have somewhere to go. That makes me feel so much better. <laughs> uh, you know, you can really talk yourself into a fit over it, over nothing, sometimes. And... um I found every kind of pain or ache I would have, uh, I would blame on cannabis. Well, I just, I'm smoking too much. And then I've been listening to your show. My spouse is a, a, a student of yours, and she introduced me to Hyperithum Perforatum, freshly picked in the tincture, in the 100 proof vodka. And um, I realized I had been using her as a scapegoat a bit, <laughs> you know, and um, it's just so interesting. Um, just to have that information. Thank you. And it's uh, Ina Mae Gaskin, right, you said? Ina Mae Gaskin the, is midwife. Yeah. 
the Midwest. Um, okay. She and her husband, Stephen Gaskin, and Stephen isn't with us anymore, um, started a place called Farm. And she helped to deliver a huge number of children, and she felt that cannabis was very useful during human birth. Yeah. Wow. Um, I certainly um, recognize it as a power plant. And whenever I'm using a power plant, I think that there's three things that I need. First of all, I need to respect the power of the plant. Secondly, I need to respect my own power and bring my own power to the conversation. And third, to make sure that I do that, I need to ritualize it. Ritualize it. Say a prayer before you smoke. Smoke only in a special pipe if you're worried about your lungs. Let all the tars and resins go into the pipe and spend a bunch of money on pipe cleaners so that you're not inhaling that stuff. Do you prefer uh, a glass pipe over another type of pipe, maybe? There's certainly a lot of glass pipes out there, and they're all very lovely. But I think that for most people, any kind of pipe is better than inhaling burning paper. Yeah, I've never been a fan of that. I use a, it's a little metal um, uh, hitter, they call it, and um, it's just a little bit at a time, but uh, never like the paper. It, yeah. Uh, never like the paper. Okay. What, uh, with, what is it with the paper? Is it the... Uh, uh, the fibers, or is it the fact that it's uh, bleached, or is it uh... what? What is said is that it's unkind to inhale hot smoke, and there unkind. might there, it's unkind to your lungs to inhale hot smoke to put hot smoke in them. Now, I don't know if I even necessarily agree with that, but that's what people say because I know that hot smoke has been used all over the world as an aid to helping the lungs. Like mullein smoke or? Yeah, like the smoke of plants. Okay. Of which cannabis is one. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Right. There were over 100 different plants that were used in smoking mixes in North America. Willow bark and Uva Ursi, which is now known as Kinnikinnik, which was the name given in general to smoking mixes, and of course, corn silk and mint and sumac berries. Apparently, sumac berries went first to Europe before tobacco and became quite popular, but tobacco overcame because it's addictive and sumac isn't. Anyway, I think there's lots of people waiting to talk, and I'm so enjoying talking to you for calling. I will. Spring blessings. Thank you very much. Good night. Thank Good you. night. The next caller is coming from the 920 area code. Hello, 920. Do you 
Have us in Hi, the ear. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. My question tonight is about calendula oil. I'm trying to make it, but I only have a few calendula plants, so I'm only getting about one or two flower heads a day. And the first batch I started, it got moldy. So I'm not sure what I'm doing incorrectly. Tell me what you did. Well, I um, the flowers were dry. I mean, or, you know, it, had, it hadn't recently rained. It was in the middle of the day or in the afternoon. And I put the flowers in the oil, so they were completely in oil in a pint jar. Now, I know that they were, I mean, our house was warm, and I wonder if that was enough to make the, it mold on the top. I'm wondering if there was enough plant material in the jar. Okay. Because you're saying that you're having a difficult time getting enough plant material. And what I was doing was adding like a new flower head every day as they as they opened up. Uh huh. And you know, swirling the jar around so that the flower head got down in the oil and got completely saturated with it. And then as I was adding more plant, I would add more oil. So was it? Do you think it was a problem that the jar wasn't full to the top with oil that there was airspace in there? Okay. I think that it's difficult to make calendula oil anyhow. Okay. People often, people because... often talk about how tricky it is. And I know that um, at the place where I taught in Quebec, she used a crock pot to make her calendula oil and dried calendula, even though she grew grew it. Oh, she made it with the dried flower heads? Uh-huh. Okay. And do you feel that will be as effective? Her calendula oil seems to be very effective. I'm she sorry. had it in a crock pot at the lowest setting, and she had a crock pot with actual numbers on the dial. Mm-hmm. So I think she had it down to like 103, 105, something quite low. Okay. <clears throat> and she only did it for like a week, 10 days, not a really long time. Oh, so, yeah, I was thinking I'm never going to make it to six weeks without this molding. So if... I don't need to do the six weeks if I do it with dried plants, dried flowers, and then in the crock pot over just a steady, warm temperature. That's what she was doing. Okay. And it seemed to make a product that she was happy with and that everybody who, who was getting it from her, and she has a very large business, was very happy with as well. Okay. And and does it matter also what time, 
like the to me the flowers seem to blossom like over a period of days you know they'll they'll be they'll open up more on day two than they were on day one and then day three seems to be even more does is there a should I tend to wait till it almost starts to seem to be dying a little and in other words drying out a little this is this is one of those things that you suddenly realize when you're working with your ally that you can get a lot of information by varying a few things. Okay. Make a jar of calendula oil from flowers that have opened that day. Make a jar of calendula oil from two-day flowers. Make a jar of calendula oil from flowers that are as you just described them. Uh-huh. And then see what you think about those different okay right okay it will also also help you make smaller amounts yes so you it'll be easier to fill your jar all you're going to have to do is look for small jars and there are small jars at the supermarket filled with baby food Mm -hmm. right right okay great thank you so much you're welcome cream blessings good night Bye-bye. The next caller is coming from the 907 area code. Hi, Susan. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Great. (laughs) Um, I was just calling. um, I have a question. I was um, institutionalized for about five months and um, had been on many different medications and um, so now that I'm out, I have been drinking, of course, the herbal, nourishing herbal infusions. And I'm feeling actually a lot better than I thought that I would. I thought it would just be crazy um, being off off of them. I thought my brain was just going to go haywire, but it really hasn't. Uh, I've had a, a few mood swings. I was on um, like a mood stabilizer, um a really hardcore one. I think they gave me like the highest milligram um, dose you could possibly go and a few other um, medications. And so I was just wondering um, how um, best I can clear them out of my system or do you think that they could already be all out the residual um, chemicals in there and everything? Did they just give you these drugs once? It was every single day um, for the last um, for t- the last if two months. If we're giving to them to you every day, then it's unlikely that they're still in your body. Okay. Our bodies are very, very well adapted to removing things that we don't have any use for. Okay. Great. <laughs> that makes it a bunch easier because I, I thought, great, because I've heard horror stories about, you know, people still feeling as if they had, you know, residual chemicals in their body a long time after after stopping something. And I was just surprised at how, how good I felt after leaving, um, but I thought I'd better follow up with, I don't know, maybe burdock or something just to be on the safe side, but... Um, but I thought I would call and ask you. <laughs> you know, there's um, so nothing wrong with that. 
burdock or dandelion or any other liver-loving herb, right? It's mm-hmm. not like you ally with one of them for a while, you're going to hurt yourself. And if it makes you feel stronger and better and better able to cope and clearer and more focused, why not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm I'm so grateful for the nourishing herbal infusions. I've um, and I know that you know during the time that I was um, in there um, that drinking them beforehand really helped keep my strength up. I'm just like, there's no way that I would be, you know, able to get through this if I hadn't have been um, drinking those infusions because, yeah, they just really helped. And I'm so glad that I'm able to put the minerals back into my body now and that I can, you know, choose to do that <laughs> instead well, of me too. not having a choice in the matter. Yes. And, and thank so you one other question for calling oh, and sorry. sharing that with us too. Yes. I'm sure there are many people <laughs> listening who are who are very moved and at least some who are listening who are saying, I'm gonna make that be me. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm, I really wish I'm really gonna start drinking those infusions now. Yeah, I mean, you never know what's gonna come up in life or you do not have a choice, and you're force-fed less than <laughs> ideal food, um, or you know, just you, yeah, you're hospitalized or something, you know, and it can be crazy. So, um, another question: I know I've heard you talk a little bit about vaccinations, and that for some of the more common ones, or or maybe ones that are um, like standard that we maybe don't need to make such a big deal out of them. And um, I was at the hospital today and was due for a tetanus shot. And so it automatically came along with the whooping cough one. But And I immediately had red flags around that, but I just kind of said yes anyway. And and I asked, I did ask if they ever did it separate. And he said that no, at that particular hospital anyway, that they always do them together. So... Um, my intuition just told me like the tetanus was okay, but not the whooping cough, but I was kind of being a pushover and <laughs> just said yes. And it was, I, I called before and, and asked about the vitamin, uh, you, you suggested vitamin B12 for headaches that I'd been having. And so I got that shot too, um, for the first time. But anyway, um, so I was going to ask you about the whooping cough one, kind of going along with the other, um, chemical, residual question like if um, it is something that would be less than ideal for the body is there something I can take to kind of get that out of my system there are two branches shall we call them to the immune system one branch takes care of bacterial infections and it's called the innate branch And it knows what to do. It can certainly learn a little bit, but basically it has very strong instinct as to how to make white blood cells and get rid of bacteria. The other part of the immune system is the part that takes care of viruses. And it has to learn how to do that. 
One of the reasons that children have a lot of colds is that there are hundreds of rhinoviruses. And every time a child is exposed to a rhinovirus, the child gets a cold because its body does not know how to respond to that virus. I asked a virologist about how long it generally took for somebody to learn how to respond to any given virus, like the things that we vaccinate against. And she said, usually several weeks longer than it takes for that organism to kill you. So tetanus lives in all soil. It can only grow in the absence of oxygen, so it's associated with puncture wounds, but also with any wound that is sewn up. Whether or not one actually needs a tetanus booster is certainly a subject of discussion. But should you be in a situation where you get a wound, where there is soil around and that wound is sewn up, then inoculation will protect you. But usually when they do that, they a tetanus inoculation at that point. Whooping cough is generally not something that's a big concern to adults, but it's a very big concern to children and can kill really small children. And vaccinating adults who haven't been vaccinated or whose vaccination isn't considered to be up-to-date or because they're getting a tetanus vaccination in your case is more about protecting children than about protecting you. However... In intent and what's going on in your body, there is no difference between any vaccination. There's been any problem with any vaccination. The idea that vaccinations are associated with autism, for instance, was um, brought up by a man who was totally discredited. He had no scientific basis for what he was saying at all. He completely made it up. He was, as it was, disbarred from the scientific community. The issue has been brought before the U.S. Supreme Court over and over again, and nothing can be found that associates vaccinations um, with autism. People point to secondary things. They say, well, it's not the vaccination itself. It's the carriers. It's the mercury and the aluminum and the other things that are put in there. But they don't really understand organic chemistry. And in organic chemistry, what we understand is that there isn't any such thing as mercury or aluminum or calcium. That they're only mineral salts. And that there are great many different mineral salts. And that our bodies react differently to the different mineral salts. And so we can choose an aluminum salt or mercury salt that is basically inert in the human body to be used as Preservative in vaccines, the vaccines can be shipped from one central place. In fact, vaccination is probably one of the only places in which modern medicine is actively using homeopathy, which like treats like. Your, your immunizations, your inoculations were, you were actually given tetanus and whooping cough. So that your body can learn to recognize them and learn how to get rid of them. 
Okay, so most likely I don't need to worry about um, getting that then. <laughs> if you got it out of your body, it would have been senseless to use it in the first place. It's changing sorry, your, what, what, it's teaching your immune system. It's kind of like once you've memorized your times tables, you're unlikely to forget. Nine times nine is okay. right? It's, it's part of what you know. I was actually just reading yesterday an article about environmental factors and autism. And it started out saying it's been very difficult to get science and scientific meant such as certain chemicals seriously in regards to being causative in autism. And the reason is that they are so disgusted that people say that vaccinations are connected to autism, that they don't even want to investigate any other causes. But one particular person um, found that because teeth are made in utero, baby teeth are made in utero, and then they fall out of the mouth around the age of five, and they're built up like the rings of trees that you can actually see what kind of chemicals that individual child was exposed to. From the middle of gestation on, by looking at their baby teeth and see if there's any environmental connection to autism, and there are some interesting and pretty strong connections that are starting to show up. All right. So, hooray for your immunizations, and thanks for your call. Green blessings. Thank you. Bye-bye. The next caller is coming from the 718 area code. Hello, 718. All right, maybe we'll come back to the 718. Well, the next caller is coming from the 818 area code. Hello? Hi. Hi, Susan. So I have two questions. They might be quick or they might be long. I just found out, and I didn't know this, but um, I just found out that literally a thousand feet from me, AT&T put a cell phone, cell phone tower on top of their building. What are your thoughts about that? If I were concerned about that, mm-hmm. I would start investigating what kind of signals is the cell phone tower putting out? In okay. what pattern are they being put out? How far is their effect felt? Most waveform patterns, like dropping a pebble into water, or striking a bell, die out fairly quickly. They're most intense, closest to the source, and as you get away from the source, they have little, little, little effect. So you're a thousand feet away. What's the effective range of whatever it's putting out? It might only be okay. 200 feet. I don't know the answers to these questions, yeah. but you 
them out. Well, I've been researching. It's just like so hard to find information. I just didn't know if you knew anything, but now you just gave me some good questions to ask. So I didn't even know where to start with questions. There you go. Yeah. Well, that's what you're concerned about, that the tower is putting out some kind of energy that might be bad for you. Yeah, may or may not. We don't know, really. I, may or may so not. Conflicting. So what kind of energy is it putting out? Okay, great. Yeah. And what, you know, at what distance does it have an effect? I'm sure that studies on this have to be done. Yeah. It's, and, you know, there's a kindergarten, like, literally 50 feet from this. I, and I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> Because if we don't so know, why as, would you do that? As far as I know, and I know very little about it, mm-hmm. um, cell phones don't work off either electrical signals or radiation signals, but something that's more like a radio wave. Okay, I kind of am starting to research that. Okay, great. You Okay, so you gave me some great things to start asking questions about and then and now I'm going to do that research and then I'm going to switch the subject totally to sprouts <laughs> to sprouts so I had brock and I think I heard you say don't eat sprouts but I had broccoli sprouts the other day and and I I cannot eat vegetables so I do your nourishing herbal infusions for years because I just I, they're just going to not get out of my refrigerator they're not going to get cooked it's not going to happen they'll get cooked they will not get eaten I had broccoli sprouts with some lemon juice on it, and it was as if my body had been waiting its whole life. And then I remembered, oh, shit, I think Susan said something about sprouts. And I can't remember. And then I researched it, and they said, well, if you're making sprouts in jars, you can get mold and you can get uh, different bacteria. But if you make them, if you let them grow and dip a bag and then hang it, it's okay. Now, is that what do you, okay, there's another. What's your thoughts? <laughs> do you have a freezer? Yes, I do. Frozen vegetables are picked at the peak of their mm-hmm. nutritional strength. It is extremely easy to buy frozen vegetables to throw the amount you are going to eat right then into a pan of boiling water. And while you're getting the rest of what you're going to eat together, they cook, and there you have wonderful cooked vegetables. What kind of excuses are you making? When my daughter and I lived alone, and we didn't have much time to cook, we took one day of the week where we spent some time that day cooking all the vegetables that we would eat that week. And then we put them in the refrigerator. We had them available to us. Well, I have that. I just don't like the vegetables, but I'm loving those sprouts. So that was my question. I understand. What is it you don't like about the vegetables? Nothing. There's not one. Everything. I hate everything. Um, It just doesn't. I'll have cauliflower. Flour them long enough. Okay. Okay. At least that's what I find here at the Wise Woman Center, that people love the vegetables we serve here, and they are very plain. 
It's not like we're putting any fancy sauce or any seasoning on them at all because we are willing to actually cook them enough. Okay. I think it's – I like that the sprouts absorb that lemon so well and then put a little goat cheese in there and mm-hmm. wrap that up in a lettuce wrap and, oh, my gosh – I, I just felt like for the last two days, my body had been craving something for my entire life I'd never had. But these were not cooked sprouts. Well, it's okay. You know, I'm not saying that you can't eat them. But here I have a list of mm-hmm. the – they decided on the nutritional score of the plant by looking mm-hmm. at what percentage – of the daily requirement the plant provided in six nutrients. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, right. And, and then they, like, expanded it to, uh, no, to, I think, one more. They had seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Right. So nettle and romaine are at the top of the list. Wow. With nettle having about 1250 and romaine having about 1100, then Swiss chard, then kale, then spinach, then collard greens, Brussels mm-hmm. sprout, canned pumpkin. And the last thing on the list is sprouts. Really? With a score of seven. Okay, so then I'll make those as like a, just a lovely condiment. Right. Okay. They're just a lovely thing to enjoy, but they ain't nourishing you. <laughs> Maybe it was the lemon juice I'm craving. I Maybe know, it's, it's just the lemon it. juice. Exactly. Hooray for lemon juice. Find a way to love vegetables. Find some peas a vegetable. Learn to love peas. Lima beans are a vegetable. Learn to love lima beans. Start with the starchier vegetables, corn, you know. Start with those hefty vegetables. Then move on into, like, carrots. Right? See if you can find a way to make vegetables exciting. I know. Well, the thing is, is it, I had no problem with vegetables growing up because my mom grew them in the garden, but it just nothing tastes like my mom's carrots or peas or anything in Alaska. She just had the best garden, and I just can't. Maybe that's the problem is that she's you not know, around anymore. I absolutely hear you on that. So one by one, search out mm. the places where you can get things that do taste that way. There's so many um, choices now. Maybe yes, Maybe you find a place where you can buy organic canned peas. And they really remind you of moms. Peas okay. survive the canning process very well. And the organic ones do tend to be tastier. Oh, yes. I, everything I do is organic, grass-fed, everything. So, But it's still really – I would go to like five different stores every week. And it, well, it's getting better. It's getting better and more available. But it's, it's just – it's still difficult. You've got to go to five – different stores to get this over here and that over there and and yes i have a giant freezer so i'm gonna i'm all right you me up. yes <laughs> you have to have extra freezer not just a little refrigerator freezer no 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 you need one as big as your refrigerator 
and put it right in your living room. I don't care. It's wonderful. <laughs> I'm I'm still learning. So now, okay. So now I'm gonna I will integrate the vegetables, and the sprouts will be a lovely condiment, and I will exactly. grow them in my kitchen. <laughs> All right. Thanks for your call. Good night. Okay. Green blessings. Thank you so much, Susan. Green blessings. Bye. Green blessings. All right, we're going to go back to the caller from the 718 area code. Hi, Susan. Hi. I was I was wondering if there's an herb that I can add to my um to my consumption that would help with the constipation that I've been um having lately and like today was, you know, painful going to the bathroom, moving the bowels. I do the infusions, and I don't know, like, I'm pretty good about the diet, having, you know, everything as in protein, vegetables, and fiber. So I'm not sure what makes, you know, what makes things better that I've not been doing in the past, like, week. Um, But, you know, as I said, it's, like, just, like, you know, painful when I'm, going to the bathroom and I was hoping there's something I can um, add to taking that would make that a little easier. Many women find that the movement of food through their intestines slows down in the days preceding their period. So it may not be something you're doing. It may be something that's happening, which is that your hormones are changing. That said, the liver helps clear those hormones from the blood so that they don't circulate as long. And any herb that helps the liver usually improves the speed which with and ease with which food moves through the gut dandelion, burdock, chicory, and the queen of them all in this regard, which is yellow dock. Yellow dock is in the polygonaceae family, the buckwheat family. And the most famous of them is rhubarb root, turkey rhubarb root. Turkey rhubarb root contains compound that causes very violent emptying of the bowels. It's used quite a lot when that's needed, especially in Chinese medicine. And it's used in the Essiac formula. You have to be careful with it, of course. But the yellow dock contains only a tiny amount of this compound. So it has a very mild effect on the body. It's safe to use on a daily basis. And it basically ensures regularity, as they say. Yellow dock can be pretty bitter, so the root is usually tinctured. It's in seed right now, so it's easy to find. The yellow dock, as an herb, consists of about five different species, Rumex crispus and Rumex aptosifolia being the two most common in the northeast part of the United States. And they have a beautiful... um, Head of rusty, russety colored seeds. And the root is yellow, thus the yellow dock. It can be tinctured, 
Carapropyl a day taken. It can be made into vinegar if you like bitter. That's also a way to work with it. And um, Grandmother Two Worlds was laughing at me one year when I was harvesting some yellow dock root because it can be a struggle to dig it up. Uh, I asked her what she would do instead if she had me so amusing, and she said she would just harvest the seeds. And ever since then, I have made yellow dock seed vinegar, which is such a wonderful vinegar and such a mild, mild vinegar. And if the slowing down, the constipation, is from hormones, if it is linked to your period, or if it's from some particular stress, like some women say, oh, I really get constipated when I'm traveling. So you, you know what those particular stresses are in your life. Um, then the yellow duck seed is usually mild enough. But if you think it's a, you know, a fairly mm, common way that your body operates and you want to use yellow duck on a daily basis, there are certainly a great many people who do. Thank you. That actually really answers my question. Because it does, it does if, you know, now that you pointed that out, I, I it is related um, to the timing of my cycle and hormonal hormonal stuff. So that's that's good to know that that's a um, a reason for it. And I'm definitely looking forward to trying the yellow dock tincture. Thank you. Green blessings. Good night. Good night. And the next caller is coming from the nine one seven area code. Hello, Susan. Hello? Hello? Hi. I can Hi. hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you now. Um, how are you tonight? Wonderful. Are you there? Oh, good. Okay. Um, I have two questions. One has to do with St. Joan's wort. It's my first time growing it, and... I noticed that it only blossoms, um, a li- you know, just a little bit at a time. So perhaps next season I might plant it in a sunnier spot, though I thought this was a sunny spot. So when I harvest it, sometimes it has some of the um, unripe parts or also maybe some of the dying flowers. And I'm wondering if that will be a problem because um, I heard you talking about sensitivity with drier, um, the dry plant. It doesn't sound to me like you're drying the plant. It sounds no, to me no. like you're using it fresh. Yeah. Okay. So it should be okay then. I don't see that there should be any problem. Awesome. Great. Okay. Thank you. My mm-hmm. second. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, my second question has to do with energy um, levels. So I generally have very good levels. I've been having the infusions for over a year and they've helped tremendously, especially the nettles. Um, I have to travel sometimes, drive like up to four hours a day for work. So I teach at various schools, so I'm driving a lot. On those days, um, and the nettles again have helped a lot, the day after I usually feel very tired, almost like I'm moving through tar. And I'm wondering if you 
think that when the St. Jones wort is ready, when the tincture is ready, so it'll be probably in a month from now because I started two or three weeks ago, um, if that would help, do you think, like almost like with the jet lag feeling? Yes. Okay. Great. But I also, but I also think that it doesn't have anything to do with the dries. Okay. But what you're doing. Hmm. For most people, driving is fairly restorative. It's time alone. It's often time that they that people listen to music. And that music can be very uplifting or perhaps they have a book they've been wanting to read and they listen to that book on tape or even just driving in silence. Wonderful, too. So for most people, a commute can be a real benefit. But if what lies at the other end of that commute is draining your energy, then it's hard to feel that. Hmm. I'm t- I teach. I mean, I'm teaching, and I and I feel like I enjoy it. Um, but you know, it, it's it can be draining. But I think that the benefits outweigh the the um, the tiredness. But that's mm-hmm. the, that's well, something well, to think about. Let's imagine this. Let's imagine that you make for yourself some special kind of imaginary garment that protects you from your energy being drained while you're out. Okay. And that when you're in a classroom, it sounds like you might substitute teach. No, um, I teach at colleges, so I'm, I okay. adjust it very- yeah. So you so you have consistent students. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And so you're more likely to know who it would be that would be draining to your energy, but you can just put on your magical garment and make sure that you are not going to be drained. Hmm. That's wonderful. Okay, I will do this. Good. And I have to say, I usually listen to uh, your show on my drive, like back and forth. So it's a wonderful, um, usually a wonderful drive with that. Very calming. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, to, to listen to me, to to daydream, commute, so long as it's not ugly traffic, it can be nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There have been times in my life when I worked jobs where I had, you know, commutes of an hour and a half and over, and they were interesting times. There's always the few hair-raising events when you have to drive home in the middle of the snowstorm. But Yeah, I live in the city, and sometimes the traffic is a little intense with flying BMWs and things mm-hmm. like that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for your call. Green blessings. Thank you. Green blessings. Thank you. Bye. The next caller is coming from the 215 area code. Hi, Susan. Um, so I've been preoccupied a little bit lately with the passing of my mom, so I apologize if um, I, I saw something in your June newsletter about the liver, and 
like a negative impact of from essential oils. And um, it said more to come. And due to my circumstances, I, I haven't seen what more there was about that. And the difficulties with essential oils is something that I've been aware of for quite a while. And it's partly because I draw a pretty tight line around herbalist. And so, to my mind, herbalists don't use flower essences and herbalists don't use essential oils. Because flower essences are placebo and all raw placebos are fine. Flower essences basically, from the viewpoint of an herbalist, add to the biggest disease on this planet, which is the belief that spirit and matter are separate. If I'm an herbalist, then the spirit of the plant is in my remedy, and I don't need a flower essence to get it. Essential oils, herbalists don't use because they're drugs. And herbalists don't use drugs. That's why we're herbalists. We're not pharmacists. We're not druggists. And certainly that distinction... There's a modern distinction, because even a hundred years ago, the druggist, the pharmacist, was the herbalist. But now drugs are different than herbs. So, if I were to go to a willow tree, and I were to extract a compound from that willow tree called salicin, it's similar to extracting a volatile oil from, say, lavender. And then if I were to concentrate that compound, that salicin from the willow, just like I could concentrate the volatile oil that I'd extracted from the lavender and then purify it, so I have only that compound, so I have only that essential oil, then you would not call the compound I had from the willow an herb. You would call it a drug. You would call it aspirin. And I would not call the essential oil an herb. I would call it a drug. Okay. And that's toxic to the liver? All drugs are toxic to the liver. Mm -hmm. Essential oils break down anything that has a fat base. If you spill an essential oil on something that's plastic, it will usually melt the plastic. That's hydrocarbons, it's fat base. If you spill it on a table that has a finish on it, it will take the finish off the table. Wow. So when essential oils are put on the skin, or worse yet, inhaled, they destroy the fat layer that surrounds every cell in your body and then enter the cells and destroy the mitochondria, which is the energy-producing body in the cell. Wow. Okay. All, all, drugs right. are, and, all drugs are dangerous. And okay. my simple definition of a drug is if you can't make it at home in your kitchen, it's a drug. Well, all right. That's fascinating. Um, and I do have another question. Um, so I've, I'm new to uh, the world of herbalism and I've been learning about it over the past year, um, and I actually got 
hurt in my herb garden on Sunday and um, I needed to get seven stitches in my leg and I didn't know what to do herbally for pain. So I was just bearing the pain, uh, which has subsided, but it would have been nice to know what I could have been doing. Do you have yarrow in your herb garden? Not yet, no. Do you have plantain in your herb garden? No. Um, I'm in Center City, Philadelphia. Well, then you have plantain in your lawn. Okay. And yarrow in the nearest meadow. Okay. How deep was the cut? Um, it felt deep, so I um, I fell on the uh, the guard the border, which was um, like a fence with kind of an arrowish head. So it was seven stitches. Um, it's starting to bruise now. So I'm told it's it's you know healing well, but I've been very sore in pain. Um, so what I'm, suge- what I'm suggesting is that mm-hmm. either yarrow or plantain chewed up and put on the wound immediately would have prevented mm-hmm. from having any stitches at all. Wow. Would have stopped the bleeding, stopped the pain, initiated healing, prevented infection. That's yarrow was used as the antiseptic an anesthetic to do limb amputations during the Civil War. Wow. Okay. And there would probably be no bruising now. Hmm. Unless a wound is particularly deep and it's going to leave a very wide scar... Most people I know don't get stitches. Mm. Wounds heal better if they're not closed at the top. Mm-hmm. The only reason to get stitches is cosmetic. Mm. Or if the wound is so deep that the chance of infection is very high. Mm-hmm. Okay. So hopefully the next cut you get will be a small cut, and you'll get some yarrow and get it into your garden because yarrow is a wonderful plant. Be sure you get the white-flowered one. It's a good time to plant it. And look around for plantain. It's growing all around you, the broadleaf plantain. I will do that. It's a lot to learn. It sure is. Yarrow and plantain are wonderful, wonderful plants, and I also have a course on herbal first aid at wisewomanschool.com. Okay. Well, I think I shall begin that. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much. Green blessings. Good night. It looks like we just have two callers in about 14 minutes before our guest arrives. Okay, well, that works out the next. Yeah, the next caller is coming from the 570 area code. 
Hello. Hi. Hi, Susan. Um, it's wonderful to talk to you. I um, am four months pregnant now, and um, I long time deal with um, liver stuff and um, have gotten into dandelion and all of that. Um, I also long time deal with weak weak digestion. So I'm pregnant now, and I have spots that are appearing on my skin. They started surprisingly on my back this time, um, but they are now appearing um, where they originally have underneath the breast. And what seemed to be what follow originally, like the liver line up the center line of the body, and then under the breast. Um, so um, it's fungal on the skin, but it's, it's, I think, stems from the very weak digestion. Um, and so when you I say your digestion, when you say your digestion is weak. Could you be a little more specific? Are you saying that oh, actually, your yes. dentition um, is very poor and you can't chew food, so you tend to eat very bland, mushed-up foods, so you're not getting good nutrition? I tend to eat uh, too many starches. Um, I tend not to be able to stay away from sugar. Like, I don't have an overabundance of it, but I feel like I need to cut it completely somehow um, but when I did see a homeopathic pharmacist about it once um, he looked at my tongue and he said that my digestion was damp and uh, so homeopaths do not look at tongues and they do not say that digestion is damp I'm not saying he wasn't a homeopath but I'm saying these are not things homeopaths say um, well these these are Chinese medicine terms and Chinese medicine diagnostics, which are perfectly good. Just don't, don't want you yeah. to confuse them with homeopathy. They're not. So he did. He did. Um, so the regular doctor in the past has given me the body wash that I think is a steroid, um, and I I never really got into using it, but. Um, I he did, the the this pharmacist man did give me a supplement called steroid. You understand that if you have something with steroid in it, it's required by law for it to state that. Uh, it's I it's called I'm I mean I'm not really sure what it is. It's called ketin kind of vol, but I thought the ending of it meant implied that it was a steroid something. You can also um, ask pharmacist, as I said, it has to say that the, part of the active ingredient is a steroid, and which one, if it actually contains it. That information should be on a package insert and or on the box. Okay. So you can check that out and find out. And you can ask the pharmacist where you get it, if you want to, as well. So that you, I, of course, always suggest that people know um, as much as they possibly can about anything that they're ingesting or putting on their bodies. Yes, good advice. Yeah. Um, I think my main concern is that I had with my last child five years ago. I'm pretty sure, like he contracted thrush coming right out of my vaginal canal. 
I didn't really just understand even at that point what yeast infections were. And even it wasn't even really showing up in through the vagina. It was it was coming out like through the nipples and in his mouth and um and I didn't I didn't recognize that at all for months. And I um I feel like even still to this day I get shooting pains through just one of my breasts. And I'm just concerned about the, the connection between the dampness and the candida and and getting this kind of nip in the butt before my next birth somehow. So, first of all, let me tell you that, that there is no such thing as candida overgrowth. I'm sorry to have to break it to you, but neither is there Santa Claus nor the Easter Bunny. Um, well, the, there's there's no such thing as candida candida everywhere. There's no such it's on my... candida overgrowth. Okay. You do not have candida. Okay. Your baby did not get it by coming through your vagina, and it did not come out of your milk, through your nipples, and into your baby's mouth. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm sorry, but there is no Easter Bunny, and there's no Santa Claus, and there is no systemic candida. <laughs> well, that's great to know. Um, I thought I was. So I was what, what I actually need is a yeah. lot longer to talk to you, because I'm not buying your story that you have poor digestion or sensitive digestion. I'm not buying it at all. And we oh. need some to talk so that I can actually ask you some questions and have you discover for yourself that your digestion is probably just fine, but that what you're feeding yourself is not just fine. Are you right now working with the nourishing herbal infusions? Yes. Um, That's a great place to start. If you could stop harassing yourself about sugar, that would be another wonderful place to start. What do we call people we love? Um... Favorites? <laughs> what do we call? Hi, favorite. I would call up my lover and say, <laughs> no, I would be more likely to say, hey, honey. Hi, sweetie. Yeah. Hey, sugar. <laughs> Am I wrong? No. The love of sugar is the love of life. Yeah. Don't try to cut off your love. Don't try to cut off your life. As you are better nourished, your craving for sugar will be less. We all crave sugar. Of course we do. It's sweet. We just had about a week. I brought out the candy bars and the cookies. And they ate, as usual, half of them. And said, isn't that interesting? A bite was enough. One cookie was enough. I didn't need to eat six more. Mm Mm-hmm. So let yourself off the hook for wanting sugar. And watch your craving fall away as you drink more nourishing herbal infusions. Yes. All right. And I'm going to talk to that other person now. Green blessing. Okay. Good night. Thank you. Bye-bye.
The next caller is coming from the 904 area code. Hi, Susan. Hello. Hi, I'm having some weird symptoms. Um, speaking about sugar, um, I'm getting really itchy, like, on my neck. Every time I eat certain foods, I think it's like an autoimmune reaction or, I don't know, my friend said something about histamine. And also, like, my my mouth is really dry, and that's, like, an autoimmune thing, too, called Sjogren syndrome. Um, it's really debilitating having, like, a really dry mouth and getting really bad, like, hives on my neck all the time. And I know that I don't want to restrict my diet because I know that, like, I live in Florida, it's 100 degrees, and, like, I need watermelon and, like, fruit sometimes because that's what my body craves. But every time I eat any sugary things, I get really itchy. So I was just wanting to know your advice. Don't eat fruit. Don't eat raw fruit. Why not? The apprentices who come and live with me have various deprivations that they undergo while they're here. And one of those deprivations is they're not allowed any fruit of any kind for the first two weeks that they're here. They are shocked and amazed to discover after two weeks without fruit and two weeks in which they're drinking nourishing herbal infusions as their sole beverage, that then when I do get fruit with them, and I get a limited amount of fruit, and it's usually small berries like blueberries or blackberries or raspberries, and they're frozen that they have access to, they find they don't want their fruit anymore. That they had wanted the fruit because they had been somehow believing they were supposed to eat it, but that once they were fully mineralized, their body didn't really crave very much fruit at all. Something to have. Do be aware that there's no nutrition of any kind in raw fruit you might indeed be having an allergic reaction. It's quite possible. Fructose. There's a lot of fructose in raw fruit. And it can cause reactions. It could also be, however, as I don't know what you're eating or if it's being washed or so on, but even organic produce can be sprayed with fungicides <laughs> or harvest. And sometimes people react to those fungicides. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'll definitely take that advice. Yeah. Um, I'm all- make, we make, for instance, a watermelon soup. Well, I take six cups of cubed watermelon and two or three peeled and seeded and thinly sliced cucumbers and mix them together with three tablespoons of olive oil and three tablespoons of herbal vinegar. We usually use mint vinegar and some salt, and stir that together and let it marinate overnight. And what happens, of course, is the oil cooks the watermelon and the cucumber, but you have a cold, wonderful, fruity soup that's loaded with nutrition. That sounds good. So Give that a try and I... see if it makes your neck itch or not. Okay. okay. And what about, like, coconut water? I'm sorry? 
coconut water is what I crave too because it's really hot here. I'm sweating a lot. And are you drinking nourishing herbal infusions? <clears throat> I am, and I'm so thirsty. Mm-hmm. And are I'm you drinking so dry? Drinking hibiscus. No. Mm-hmm. You might like hibiscus, and when people are, tell me that they are very dry, I often uh, think of marshmallow. At the Green Goddess Week. We had each one of the five nourishing herbal infusions over the first five days. And then for the last couple of days, we had kind of odd infusions. And we asked them which was their favorite. And the marshmallow root infusion was a big, big favorite this year. So try some marshmallow root infusion in addition to whatever infusion you're having for that day. And see if that helps to soothe some of the dryness. I will tell you that over the years, I've had three apprentices with Sojourn's Syndrome. Um, when they arrived, and after drinking nothing but nourishing herbal infusions and eating very well-cooked food and virtually no raw food at all, um, they all left without their surgeon syndrome. That's amazing, and my goal is to save up money to come as live in a, as an apprentice with you. So hopefully I'll get to meet you soon. <laughs> oh, thank, thank you for that. Yeah. I hold that very close. Well, thank you for all of your advice. I appreciate it. Green blessings and good night. Green blessings. Bye. Tonight, we are talking with Sarah Drew. She's the visionary author of the Gaia Codex. Sarah Drew catalyzes powerful blueprints for the future deeply rooted in the gnosis of the past. Her professional experience includes early forays into creating content for virtual reality platforms as a CEO and co-founder of Serpmon in the 1990s and subsequently working as a producer and creative director on media projects that have explored the itches of digital technology and visionary narrative. Sarah Drew has been a featured speaker at the graduate level and at organizations such as Google and ABC Deepak Homepage. And she is currently a popular teacher and mentor for women worldwide on topics such as feminine wisdom, evolutionary culture, and regenerative technology. Sarah Drew is a lifelong explorer of culture and consciousness. She has traveled from the jungles of the Amazon to the high peaks of Bhutan, where she had the honor of studying and living with key lineage teachers. At UC Berkeley, Sarah studied religious studies. Her work expresses a deep curiosity and a polymathic approach to exploring multiple disciplines with a focus on humanity's evolution, the cultivation of compassion, and our multi-generational nurturance of Mother Earth. As a storyteller, Sarah Drew, is inspired by regenerative narratives that give us both a deeper understanding of our past and powerful blueprints for the future. Sarah currently serves on two advisory boards, SHETV, a new media platform for women, and Mission BE, an initiative that brings contemplative practices into urban schools. Sarah lives with her husband in Manhattan and on a lush forested farm somewhere in the Hudson River Valley. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Great to be here. Thank you. 
I often tell people that there are a lot of beautiful places on this planet, but most of them you can't live in. The Hudson River Valley turns out to be one of the most beautiful places on the planet where you can live there. Yeah, it's, it's such a blessing to be here and really, you know, get to experience the seasons pass and the subtleties of the land. Um, I'm fairly new here, five years in, so I, I really feel like a novice in starting to really understand the wisdom of this particular earth here. It's, it's really been a pleasure to be here and to be here on the show with you. Thank you. I know that one of the things you do is that you envision into the future. Sometimes people talk about, you know, bringing things from the past. But I think one of your strengths Mm. is in the future. If you were going to look ahead to the future, say, 25 or 35 or 40 years ahead, let's see, that would be 2055 if we're looking 35 years ahead. What Mm. do you think that's going to look like? What's so interesting is, you know, working with, you know, possible timelines for humanity, for all species on the planet, for our our Mother Earth. And I feel that, you know, we're here at one of these very uh, critical junctures where we're, we're always choosing the future. And, you know, I think the future that I would like to see and many of us would like to see would be one where we're living closer to the Mother Earth, where we have become a bit more humble in our uh, material aspirations and consumption, where the wisdom of the Earth herself, you know, this amazing six billion year codex of uh, information is really started to seep into the culture and you know I think right now speaking present time you know that we're we are living moment to moment and not living as, as you know for multiple generations so I would hope that we would have shifted that course but we're we're at this we're at this very critical juncture point and you know i think many of us are aware of um it's tenuous territory but i i have hope within that and you know i hope that we can find our pathways collectively out through that so you think we'll all be around in 2055 <laughs> Uh, depends on the moment, depends on the day. <laughs> <laughs> well, you remember back, you know, in the 1970s when everybody was convinced we were going to blow ourselves sky high, or worse yet, that we would keep populating. Well, we have not blown ourselves sky high, but we have kept on populating. So we've pretty much proved that we generally have a very hard time really looking forward. So it's a fascinating thing. Now, there's a word you use, and I'm not sure if most of the people listening have any idea what the word is, really means. So could you tell us what codex is and what it means? Yeah, codex um, has its root in Latin. It, it comes from like a tree trunk, you know, and so it's like a living tree. It's been, you know, come to mean like a compilation Um when they talk about codexes or codices, they, they talk about the compilation of, of, of a body of, of a sacred work or text. Um, in this context, 
with the title of uh, the novel, The Gaia Codex, it, it's looking toward towards the the living um, memory and database and records of the earth itself. And so it's this idea that we have the ability and within the mythos of the book, um, the priestess of Estera, these women who have reincarnated in different times and cultures have the ability to connect into these records and wisdom of the earth. And their lineage is there to, to hold this, in protection, but also to to share it and to bring it forth in times when there's environmental and societal crisis that's happening, and that would I sense be one of these times, you know, um, where this I think you know the work that you're doing is so seminal in in really connecting people back to to earth wisdom and, and especially through the plants and you know the flora and fauna yes it's certainly one of the major disconnects of our age that um, you know as, as one woman is quoted as saying well I don't know what we need farms for I buy my food at the supermarket <laughs> yeah I, I was I, I I felt very fortunate. Um, my parents weren't quite children of the the '60s and '70s, but they did have organic gardens. And I grew up milking a goat and doing seasonal gardens in California, which is a little bit different than seasonal gardens on the West Coast. And having 40 avocado trees, and so there was a direct experience from day one, really, you know, and as soon as we started to go out and explore the world of understanding where food came from and being part of that process. And, you know, I'm forever thankful to them for that. What a wonderful start. Yeah, it's a good start. <laughs> but, both, for, both for cellular, you know, building up healthy cells and uh, and just having that, that connection you know, weeding, planting. Isn't <laughs> that they actually gave you the experience of being able to provide for yourself from the bounty of nature? Yeah, yeah. It was one of really one of the key key markers, and um, and and that's where most of our our produce came from. You know. Um, so I think it also in the in the in the Gaia Codex, there's you know some scenes that are reminiscent of that when uh, the main character Lila Sophia, it's, it's a heroine's journey, you know, uh, that takes place like a flash moment after now. But she has time of uh, apprenticing with uh, a character called Old Woman, and she gets to experience some of that. And, and also her own, you know, spiritual and, and physical uh, evolution, really her spiritual evolution and reawakening to, to who she is. Mm. Louis Satish reminds us that heroine is what you shoot in your arm, is a diminutive of hero, which is actually a Greek root, and so the female is Hera. Oh. It's the Hera's journey. It's a beautiful re- reframing of it. Yeah. 
And of course, yeah. there's there's a goddess Hera as well. That's my association with it. Yeah, the goddess Hera. But Hero Hera, right? Same word, but with a male ending and a female ending. Women are really important in the regreening of Mother Gaia. Yes. Yeah, I think we're. I think the balance between male and female is very important, and I think, um, you know, the women coming into balance with the male element of ourselves is really essential. Sorry, there's no any woman. This simply is not. Every woman has X X in every cell of her body. She's female female. Now, men have a woman in every cell of their bodies. They are half men and half women, but we do not. And we are yeah, not. Yeah, I was thinking. And can't I was be. thinking more from from the archetypal level of who we are as human beings. Um, that as well. There is no archetype of male in a woman. There simply isn't, and there can't be. We give birth to men. We aren't them. We give birth to women. We can produce anything, but we are not half men. We are all women. And anything we do, we do as women. Whereas men, you look at, you know, man and his <clears throat> symbols by Jung, a book in which 99% of it shows the archetype of the female for the man and how he must find his female part and then he has like what 10 pages at the end where he he tries to prove that there's a male half of a woman and he can't do it because there's simply no evidence at -hmm. any rate um there are priestesses of astara in your book is that true yeah the it it, it talks about the priests of astara these are women who have uh reincarnated through time into this lineage and their uh, mission really is to tend to the Gaia Codex and to tend to the earth and to bring about well-being for all being through time and to help humanity navigate through these times. And it's, it's a sisterhood that, that spans eons. And they really work as the wholeness of women through the multifaceted aspects of their sisterhood, you know, with each person playing a unique and important role. Um, you know, it's the, the goddess, it's like the Mahadeva, the goddess of many forms, you know, and I, I really feel like the sisterhood of our time is when we have the goddess is not one woman, but is many women. And it is this sisterhood and we're seeing it rise right now. And it's essential that it's rising right now. Um, now, is the codex, the codex itself like a an actual physical thing? No, it's more of a esoteric. On a sutra, yeah, it's gonna, bamboo on this big wheel that was turned. But the codex isn't something like that. It's more of an idea. No, it's a, it's like a web. It's more like. A kind of a, a connection of like a Akashic record or a Indra's web, you know, if you go into the reference there where it's an nth dimensional web of information is one way to look at it in the etheric level. The other way to look at it is that it resides in the earth itself. You know, it's in the leaves of trees, the hum of bees, 
you know, it's in nature itself that, that reveals the wisdom as you access it. So it works at these different levels. I, in, in the book, it's represented for a, a portion of it, if you will, you know, as a manuscript. But w- within the mythology of the priestesses, it's, it's more something that is as you're connecting with the earth and as you're connecting to the Mother Earth that it reveals itself. It's also a historical record. The Codex is a historical record. Historical record of Earth, yeah. Mm, so the history of the planet. Right, and the wisdom of the planet. Wow. And kind of... <clears throat> Amazing, because we are such a, a tiny little part of that. <laughs> right. Just right. a flash moment, right? Right, it's... You know, it's if the planet has been in existence for a year, that we have been in existence for what less than a millionth of a second. Right, like a little fruit Bing. fly, fruit, fruit fly, right? Just a little oh, pop. That's even too long, I'm told. <laughs> and yeah. then all we're, we're, all life itself is as thick as the little white bloom on a grape that you can wipe off with your thumb. So thick that all life has been wiped off this planet over and over again. And that the planet goes on because, as you say, the planet's wisdom, the planet's codex is within her and with everything that she produces, whether it's a volcano or a human being. Now, you talk about sacred technology, and that is something that I would guess that most people would go, no, wait, no, technology is bad. It can't be sacred. So could you tell us more about that, please? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, of course, of course, you could think that a lot of the esoteric practices through time are uh, sacred technology, right? Whether with the Egyptian or Vedic lines, or in any, you know, we can keep on going with the different cultures. Um, what I'm thinking about, though, with current technologies, I, th- I think there can be. It's really important for us to understand. There's not that technology itself is bad, but what is the intent of in creation when it's being created? What's the intent of use? What is it being created from? What thought or consciousness is it being created from? And, you know, I personally don't feel that, I feel this current round of technologies, that there's another level that isn't, in some ways, they're clunky. They they certainly extract a lot of energy from the earth, right? Um, they aren't as maybe bioresonant as they could or or, or should be. Um, I think sacred technology is is ultimately comes down to alchemy. You know, and the ability for human beings to awaken in consciousness in bioresonance with their environment. It's so interesting to me that the popular idea of alchemy is exactly as you say, an awakening of consciousness and a, a reuniting. Mm. Historically, alchemy was the exact opposite. Alchemy was the end, the beginning of the end of people's connecting to the earth. 
up, up, mm. up until people knew that plants had spirits and they connected with them. Mm. Alchemy mm. plants just become repositories of constituents that are acted on by men. Yeah, no, it's it's crazy, you know, the loss of the, you know, when when you're there, and when you're there experiencing the devas, right, and and really when there there is that symbiotic relationship and that that learning from the plants, you know, that humbleness of really, almost in a way, bowing before the plants' wisdom and letting them teach you over time. And you know, when I was saying at the beginning of our talk here today you know, where I feel like a novice here in the Hudson Valley is, you know, I'm doing some simple gardens here and I'm really just learning how to, to work with her capital H (laughs) here. And, you know, what does this land ask for? And it's been so much of a listening, you know, in these beginning years and experimentation and, listening to the life life forces of the planet, the, the planet within the plants, the <laughs> and vice versa. Or the rich side. <laughs> Say that again. I'm sorry, you cut out. Are you on the rocky side of the river or the rich side of the river? Oh, uh, we're in the rich side. It's, it's yeah, it's quite fertile. A lot of forests, but some, we have... Um, we have some grain fields, and it's it's natural. The natural soil is very nice. Yes, yes, you, you're very far rich. Far. I have two kinds: yeah. broken rock and solid rock. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So tell mm-hmm. us more about the book. The book is the Gaia Codex, and the Gaia Codex is a novel, and there are the priestesses of Estera in the novel, and they have a relationship to the Gaia Codex. If somebody wanted to learn more about this or even buy a copy, what would they do? Um, well, it's easy to find on Amazon for, for buying a copy. Um, and I give quite a few talks about it, and there's a community around it. Uh, and, and basically the, the high line is it's about an ancient lineage of women that through the rise and fall of cultures have hold, held these regeneration codes for the planet, the priests of Estera. And when there's times of societal or environmental collapse, these women come together to help birth the world anew. And it's the idea that, you know, the earth is existent as herself, but we are also participants in it. Why we were here, why we are here as the human species. And we're also participants in the dreaming and the regreening, as she would say, of of Mother Gaia. And so these women are this this legion who this is their their primary and essential calling. Um, but the book's an adventure story and um, we have a large following, and it seems to speak to people, and it continues to unfold for me as well. And I really appreciate getting to meet people who are here at this particular moment in history of Common Cause. It's wonderful talking with you as well. Yes. You focus a lot on kindness, 
compassion, empathy, and awareness of our essential interconnectedness. Do you want to say anything about those qualities? Yeah, I think um, I've done a lot of uh, Buddhist practice. I was a religious studies major at UC Berkeley, and but ended up kind of going back into the the Buddhist line and the the idea of you know that we're we're everything is of course interconnected, right? And many many cultures have this knowing, but this interconnectedness also brings about a causality that in the Christian tradition it would be the golden rule, right? You know what what we sow is what we reap, and I th- I feel it's an important thing for us to remember. You know, at this particular juncture, when the culture itself is becoming a bit crazy, and I think people have forgotten a lot about that. And it doesn't mean that you aren't fierce, that you don't hold Kali or you don't hold the fierce goddess when needed, but you're doing this with the idea not to harm, you know. And tell listeners how they can get in touch with you and a little bit more about what they would find when they get in touch with you. Yeah. Um, You can reach me at... uh, The website is probably the easiest, either GaiaCodex.com or sarahdrew.net, and there's a way to get in hold of me directly there. There's uh, ways to become part of our community. There's ways to uh, reach me directly, and I like to be able to uh, communicate directly when possible. And... That's probably the best way. And then the book is, is on Amazon. Great. And that's Sarah with H. Drew, like the past tense of draw. Sarah with an H. Drew. Get in touch with her to find out lots more about the things that she is putting in her cauldron and brewing up there as she looks forward into what we can become. Because... I think that both Sarah and I have been taught by teachers who say that the only way to have a different world is to envision it and then make that vision real. Hmm. Beautifully said. Yeah. (laughs) What what haven't we talked about that's in your heart and mind that you really want to talk about? We're getting close to the end of our time together. Yeah, I understand. Um, Just for everyone listening right now, um, to really nurture that seed that each of us has inside of us. And it's really to be fearless and to be fearless in these times. Um, sometimes the quote-unquote circumstances aren't perfect to really go ahead and act, but that's okay. And, you know, I think to to act with courage and to really go down deep into those roots of our inner wisdom that each of us have and to come together as a sisterhood. And these are urgent times and our communion and community 
and is essential. And and just put a prayer out for the well-being of Mother Gaia within that. Mm. Could you give us a few examples of regenerative technology and how this is actually manifesting? I think the human species is evolving. And it's maybe, you know, it's like when you go into a forest, you maybe notice a plant that looks a little different than what its sisters and brothers or its sisters, however you want to put it, was. And it starts to evolve to be adaptive to its environment in ways that will be different in different and different biomes. You know, I, I feel that human beings um, have the ability to really be what I call like bioresonant, to, to be adapt themselves to optimum circumstance. But that involves listening and that involves a deconditioning a lot of, of what we've been taught. Yes, I often think that the rise in autism is the, that and this exact kind of evolutionary step that you're talking about. That mm. often, as it begins, looks somewhat disastrous, but in fact holds mm. of a profoundly new way of thinking and being. It's funny. I, I had a there was a. Especially, I was having a conversation probably 30 years ago with a specialist in autism who's probably passed at this point. I'm not recalling his name. He was a doctor from San Diego. And, you know, I was a young woman at the time. But I, I felt the same, actually, that it was, uh, you know, it's it's emergent and it's not maybe understandable. But there was also, I was trying to, to help with technological interfaces that might be helpful for beings with that consciousness at that time. So, yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm. Oh, well, thank you so much, Sarah, with an H. Drew, for being with me and talking to me and telling me about what you were doing and about the Gaia Codex, which sounds just fascinating. And we have indeed come to the very, very end of our time together. And I always like to give you this last little bit of time to put your last words, your last seeds, into the hearts and the minds of everyone who's listening. I'm just sending love to everyone who's listening. And gratitude to you, Susan, for having me on today. Love and gratitude as we are reweaving the healing cloak of the ancients as women are coming together more and more, joining their strengths together to make this vast web, this vast healing cloak that spans our planet and holds us together and takes us through times of trauma and stress and uh, Oh, my goodness, uh, all of the travails of our life. Thank you so much for all the work that you are doing to weave this healing cloak, Sarah Drew. And thank you, Rebecca, for all that you are doing. And thank you, Justine, too. 
It takes many hands, many hearts, and many weavers to reweave this healing cloak. And meanwhile, we are also restoring herbal medicine to its rightful place as people's medicine is the medicine that's right outside your back door. Thank you so much, everybody, for being with us tonight. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Rebecca. Love you, Justine and Monica Jean. Green blessings, everybody. Thank you, everyone. Good night.